1: Hello and welcome to Stefanomics, the podcast that brings the global economy to you. We have a packed episode this week, including a report from Johannesburg on the economic costs of not vaccinating Africa, a sit-down with the German finance minister, Olaf Scholz, who's running to succeed Angela Merkel as German Chancellor in the autumn, and a plan to save the world for a mere $50 billion. First, Bloomberg senior economy reporter Sean Donnan has been on the road again to a city in the American Rust Belt, which is being promised a bright future, again.
2: Before we go any further, let's get this out of the way. This is, of course, Bruce Springsteen. And then there is this guy, who you may remember.
3: I am thrilled to be back in the great state of Ohio, right here, with the incredible men and women of Youngstown.
2: That is, of course, Donald Trump. And both he and Bruce Springsteen are riffing on a place they have in common. If you want to find an emblem of American industrial decline, then Youngstown, Ohio is probably as good as it gets. The steel mills started shutting down in the 1970s, and nothing has been the same since. That story of industrial turmoil and its economic and political consequences from inequality to populism is by now a familiar one. But for a place like Youngstown and a new US president, Joe Biden, it's one entering a fresh chapter. Biden, like Trump, has promised to bring well-paid factory jobs back to the U.S. He wants to do that by investing in infrastructure and new energy technologies, and to have the government support an enormous industrial pivot in the auto industry, from combustion engines to electric vehicles.
4: In fact, it's the largest American jobs investment since World War II. It will create millions of jobs. Good paying jobs will grow the economy, make us more competitive around the world, promote our national security interest and put us in a position to win the global competition with China in the upcoming years.
2: The challenge facing Biden is that this isn't the first time in recent history that it's been attempted and that so far the efforts haven't ever really generated the jobs promised which is where Youngstown and a part of its story that hasn't been told very often comes in. In 2012, when Joe Biden was vice president, the Obama administration set up a 3D printing institute in Youngstown. It was part of a broader manufacturing policy, and yes, it was aimed at bringing back factory jobs.
0: Our first priority is making America a
2: magnet for new jobs in manufacturing. That's President Barack Obama speaking to Congress for his 2013 State of the Union address. There are things we can do right now to accelerate this trend. Last year, we created our first Manufacturing Innovation Institute in Youngstown, Ohio. A once shuttered warehouse is now a state-of-the-art lab where new workers are mastering the 3D printing that has the potential to revolutionize the way we make almost everything. There's no reason this can't happen in other towns. Almost a decade on, almost $200 million has been invested in that institute. It is now known as America Makes. It has 13 employees in Youngstown and counts about 200 companies in its network nationally, including about a dozen in the Youngstown area. Local officials and educators are also trying to establish Youngstown as a training center for manufacturing workers of the future. The goal is to create a business ecosystem that will attract new investment and jobs in industries like additive manufacturing and electric vehicles, all funded by millions in government investment. But it's slow work, and it's hard to declare that the Institute has fueled a manufacturing jobs renaissance in Youngstown. In 1990, more than 61,000 people worked in manufacturing in the Youngstown metropolitan area. When Obama gave that address to Congress in January 2013, the number was just below 30,000. By March of this year, it was a little over 23,000. Among the success stories is Juggerbot 3D, which makes industrial-scale 3D printers out of a subsidized space run by America Makes. Zach DiFincenzo is a Youngstown area native and the company's co-founder and president. He showed me around recently. That humming you hear in the background, that's his machines.
5: Most people think, like, what do you print? I'm trying to understand what you print. I can show you parts. Yeah. What, the, what a lot of people don't understand is I can also print tooling that you would use to make parts.
2: Government help is meaningful for Juggerbot. It helps seed the company. Half its $2.2 million in revenues this year will come from government projects. Juggerbot has access to defense department laboratories and government contracts that would make most startups salivate. But it's also not a huge jobs creator. Juggerbot has six full-time employees. DiFincenzo has plans to grow. But when he talks about his dream for his business five years from now, he's talking about employing 40 to 60 people. The jobs a company like JuggerBot provides are skilled and well-paid. The company provides good benefits like health insurance. That's something DiFincenzo is proud of. When the sprawling GM plant in nearby Lordstown shut down in 2019, one idea he had was to hire machinists being laid off. And his benefits were part of the pitch.
1: It was, a, it was actually an idea, yeah. but we just didn't have the funding to do so. Yeah. You know,
0: we have good health care. Um, we, we have a good health care plan for being small. Like yeah.
2: But companies like JuggerBot operate on a different scale from giants like GM. When GM shut down in Lordstown, 4,500 people were working at the plant. A new electric vehicle company has taken over the facility, but it's only promising to employ 1,500 people. A new battery joint venture between GM and South Korean conglomerate LG nearby is pledging to hire a little over 1,000 people. In other words, just getting back to where you started looks challenging. The story of the 3D printing push in Youngstown also illustrates another long-running issue facing manufacturing workers. Economists love rising productivity, but that, by its very definition, means producing more with less, which is America's manufacturing jobs problem in a nutshell. The U.S. has for decades been producing more industrial goods than it did with steadily fewer workers. And that's not about to stop. That's evident in Litonia, 25 minutes south of Youngstown, where Mark LaMancha is plotting the 3D printing future of his own company, Humtown Products.
5: Actually, we're going through now almost two railroad cars of sand a month, which for additive, that's huge. Wow.
2: In a former Mitsubishi tire mold factory, five German-made 3D printers were away 24 hours a day, printing sand molds for foundries that will use them to manufacture engine blocks and other cast metal components. La Mancha is an evangelist for 3D printing and new productivity-driven management techniques. He has rebranded his employees' industrial athletes. On his business card, La Mancha has the title Head Coach. But that doesn't mean more jobs. When the last recession hit in 2008, Humptown employed 225 people. Today it employs 48. At the new Letonia plant are just eight of those people. It is a cavernous and quiet place.
5: So now this is the printer room. Okay. And I'm trying to think which printer came in last. It'll be the one on the end.
2: Uh huh. La Mancha is also exploring 3D-printing metal components directly and venturing into other materials, which presages an even bigger disruption of the local industrial economy.
5: What is this? This is polyethylene. Okay. Normally polyethylene comes in about the size of an eraser head. Okay. Until you, act, until you ask one of, one of them, <laughs> can you make me polyethylene sand? So, I asked ExxonMobil if they could make the polyethylene sand. Yeah. You know what we're going to print in there next? We're printing polyethylene. Printing polyethylene, wow.
2: It's a trial to see if a relatively old-school mold maker like Hometown can be a high-speed producer of plastic components and find another future. No, it's, it's a science experiment, yeah.
5: but... What, the, the power of what if. What if it and, works?
2: And, and if it works, it gets you into what? What kind of products then? You if using? that experiment succeeds, it will, of course, be good for hometown and La Mancha. It might even be good for the U.S. economy as a whole. Think of it as a sign of a new industrial dynamism. But it's also unlikely to mean more jobs for a place like
3: Youngstown. When what if turns to it is now or whatever the word would be for when it actually works, that would
2: For Bloomberg News, I'm Sean Donick.
1: though the long-term problems for the economy have definitely not gone away, the short-term news has been a bit brighter for many of us recently. Shops and bars opening again, roads filling up. My children were even told this week they didn't need to wear masks in the classroom anymore. But that feeling of reawakening, many of us might be feeling, is far from universal. In fact, globally, there are nearly as many people dying now of Covid-19 than at the peak earlier in the year twice as many as when the first wave got going in the US and Europe, a year ago. For large parts of the world, COVID-19 has probably never looked more threatening, and the stakes for sub-Saharan Africa are especially high. Here's Bloomberg's economy and government reporter in Johannesburg, Prinesha Naidu.
6: This should have been a promising year for Africa. Instead, a shortage of coronavirus vaccines threatens to stall output, increase inequality and reverse the gains made against poverty. Most countries on the world's least inoculated continent are depending on COVAX, a global initiative created to provide equitable access to vaccines. But African nations won't receive the bulk of their orders until the second half of the year, and those will only cover a fifth of their populations. Others are cash-strapped and relying on donations from China, Russia and even India where a devastating disease outbreak and temporary ban on exports have already curbed shipments. That leaves Africa vulnerable to new waves of infection and extended lockdowns. The United Nations Economic Commission for Africa is warning of potentially dire consequences. The slow vaccine rollout and lack of funding to bridge the gap between poor and rich countries could set Africa back two to five years. Ronak Gopaldas is a director at Africa-focused risk management firm Signal
3: Risk. The slow vaccine rollout in Africa is deeply concerning because it really runs the risk of making us a pariah continent. If we do not vaccinate our people in Africa, we are going to be locked out of the global economic recovery which is going to compromise our ability to achieve growth, uh, to trade with the rest of the world, to unlock investment, uh, which is going to to see us remain a laggard continent.
6: The International Monetary Fund already sees economic activity, particularly in the sub-Saharan region, falling behind world output. Rich countries with access to vaccines are expected to recover more strongly from the pandemic than poorer nations, struggling under the dual burdens of disease and debt. COVID-19 plunged 30 million Africans into extreme poverty last year, meaning they live on less than ninety a day. And without adequate support, as many as 39 million more could follow in 2021, according to the African Development Bank. While advanced economies can afford to extend stimulus measures for many months, African policymakers were already burdened by budget deficits and high levels of debt even before the pandemic struck. They're under pressure to restore public finances. Some African countries will get relief after the Group of 20 Nations extended its debt service suspension initiative to the end of 2021, and others will receive a portion of the $33 billion dollars in special drawing rights that the IMF plans to provide to African countries. While that's unlikely to be enough, there are some silver linings, according to Gopaldas. Accommodative global monetary and fiscal conditions should allow African countries to attract capital and reduce their costs of funding. And higher commodity prices should also benefit governments in resource-rich nations.
3: We would do well not to squander this opportunity. you remember that at the turn of the last decade, we were in this position as well, but both economic governance and political governance has regressed over that period. Um, So I think it's important that we take some of these lessons on board. We need to diversify our economies. We need to integrate regionally. And this is where I think the Continental Free Trade Agreement becomes important. And then also we need to really improve our governance, both from an economic and political perspective. and I think if we do that, we'll have a fighting ch- chance of, of coming out of this, this pandemic
1: um, in, a, in, a, in a reasonable manner. So the distribution of vaccines around the world is shockingly unequal, but everything about this pandemic has been distributed unequally. And globally, as we can hear very clearly in that piece, the gap between rich and poor countries seems to be getting wider every day with advanced economies uh, now getting pretty spirited, highly vaccinated economic recoveries, and the developing world continuing potentially to suffer further waves of disease and economic pain. But this could all end very differently for not very much more money, according to a proposal to end the COVID-19 pandemic, which was published this week by the chief economist of the IMF, Gita Gopinath, and her co-author, Rashir Agarwal. Uh, Tom Orlick, uh, for once we're talking about something that wasn't a piece of your research, um, our Bloomberg chief economist. But uh, tell us a little about what this plan is.
5: Yeah, so great to be here, Stephanie, and, and hopefully in the interest of equity, you'll also be inviting uh, Geeta Gopinath on the podcast to discuss one of my pieces of research on a on a future episode.
1: She has um, been. She's been on, but I'm afraid I, I forgot to talk about you. Next time I will.
5: Um, so um, so an ingenious, smart proposal from the, the leading lights of the International Monetary Fund. Um, they say that if we can spend $50 billion today to boost the vaccination effort, especially in low and middle income countries, that's going to deliver enormous benefits. Enormous health benefits, of course, but by spurring the recovery in those countries, also enormous economic benefits. They put a number on it. $50 billion to boost vaccination efforts could deliver $9 trillion in enhancements, increases in global GDP as the global economy accelerates.
1: So that's a ratio of 180 to 1, which does seem like quite a good cost-benefit cost, cost benefit, uh, ratio. And quite a lot of those benefits, I think they say 40% of that would go to the high-income countries. So this isn't just... Uh, Altruism. Uh, there's a, there are there are benefits to, to all economies. And and how does this proposal differ to what they think would otherwise happen? Because we obviously have seen some. Uh, we have Covax. We have quite big global efforts to vaccinate the poorest economies.
5: So I think there's a few dimensions. Uh, the first is that this accelerates and amplifies the effort to vaccinate low and middle income countries. The second is it expands the resources that we have to go into vaccination, freeing up the cross-border flow of raw materials necessary for vaccinations, for example. Um, And the third is that it puts what the authors describe as kind of um, risk mitigation efforts in place. They suggest we need to diversify the sources of vaccine supply. They suggest very sensibly that as we wait for those new vaccines to come online, we need to prep the distribution mechanisms so that when the additional shots are available, they can quickly go into people's arms.
1: It's very eye-catching to have put the costs and benefits in these terms. Uh, And and there is such a very large gap between the two. It just seems like an easy win uh, for the the international community when we've done so well at getting these vaccines developed so fast. Um, Any chance it's going to happen, do you think?
5: I mean, the world has faced an enormous collective action problem over the course of the COVID pandemic, right? The right response back at the start of 2020 was a global lockdown to contain the virus. The right response after the virus got out of control was a global vaccination effort. Um, Those things haven't happened. Why is that? I think it's because systems are sticky, right? We like freedom. We like liberty. We like democracy. We like capitalism. And these things make it harder to solve collective action problems at a national level even harder to solve them at a global level. If we think outside of the COVID crisis, things like returns to increasing education for women in emerging markets, um, moves to eradicate other diseases, these would also generate absolutely enormous global benefits. We've not been able to solve the collective action problem we need to solve to address those problems. I would love to think that this um, Gopinath and Agarwal paper provides a catalyst for more rapid action on the COVID crisis. We'll have to wait and see whether that happens.
1: So there are a lot of dimensions to this—not just the lack of vaccination—but that's at least w- we can see in that IMF proposal that there's something concrete that the world could do, and maybe maybe they'll do it. Tom Warlick, thanks very much. Thanks,
5: Stephanie.
1: Finally, I couldn't resist playing you just a small chunk of a long interview I had earlier in the week with Olaf Scholz, the German finance minister, who's the Social Democratic Party's candidate for chancellor in the autumn elections. He's currently running third in the polls to the Green Party candidate and the new leader of the Christian Democrats, the party of Angela Merkel. He was just coming from a meeting of G7 finance ministers, so I started by asking him about the European Union's Sanctions on Belarus agreed very rapidly at a meeting of government leaders on Monday. There's also a few snippets on those global tax negotiations that I know Stefanomics listeners have been very interested in. We also had a conversation about him and his party's prospects in the election.
4: You should see that I'm coming from a city of seafarers. I was the mayor of Hamburg time ago and uh, we were always fighting against piracy. You could understand that I'm really, really angry about what happened and we cannot accept activities like this in Europe. This is against any agreement we had and have and uh, it is necessary that we are are strict and that we continue to be strict.
1: Isn't that an inevitable corollary? How can we have this response to the to, to Belarus and not also have it affect the broader relations with Russia, which has been so supportive of this regime.
4: We are reacting to what we see and this is the case with Belarus. I'm absolutely absolutely sure that it is necessary to be clear about what we are thinking about the future and to use it for a new development in European-Russian relations and uh, this is I think an activity that should be done by all member states together. It is not necessary that we ask always for new steps. It is necessary to be clear.
1: Well, you say we need to be clear. I mean, many people on the outside and indeed many in the EU feel that there, is a, there isn't clarity in the position as long as Germany is going ahead with a pipeline that would increase Europe's dependence on, on Russia and actually undermine some of the EU's allies and even members uh, closest closest to Russia. Can we have that clarity when we're still going ahead with a major project like that?
4: It is a private project that has been developed for a very long time and it's nearly finished now. So the important question is whether the idea behind your question is correct, that there, it is increasing the dependency of uh, Europe or Germany in uh, support from Russia if we look at gas. And this is not the case. We already have a lot of uh, gas from Russia, but we also have gas gas from Scandinavia and from other places. We are not just relying on gas. My view is that uh, many of those complaining about this fact should uh, look at their own imports of uh, fossil resources from other places and also from Russia. The question is not whether we will have this pipeline. The question is how we invest into the future. And there is Germany in, intensely acting.
1: Just a, a final question on the Nord Stream uh, pipeline. You know, th- last year, uh, when Alexei Navalny was poisoned and detained, uh, there was a, a round of pressure and questioning around that pipeline. Is there anything that the Russian government could do at this point in terms of violating basic norms of European behaviour that would cause you to have a second thought about the pipeline?
4: Our view must be better development in European-Russian relations. And for that, it is necessary that we are strict in when there are conflicts with uh, all the agreements we already have. And we were strict in the uh, debate about Crimea. We were very strict.
1: But they can support piracy
4: No one can support piracy without uh, getting a strict answer from the European Union and will not. And this is, uh, from my point of view, the real question, how we act cautiously and strict and clear. And uh, this is what is the task for all of us when we want to keep peace in Europe.
1: One other area in which there have been developments in the last day or two is these uh, negotiations over uh, global tax and the so-called, the sort of the two pillars that are now uh, subject of conversation at the OECD, G7 and elsewhere. You were very positive about uh, President Biden's sort of compromise proposal for a 15 percent minimum corporate tax rate. Do you see uh, a practical solution to that, the other pillar of the talks, this idea of where companies, not just how much, but where particularly the digital uh, companies are taxed?
4: We worked now for a very long time, all the four years when I am in office, uh, for getting a solution in the two aspects of uh, the necessary agreements on taxation on the global level. One is the minimum taxation of corporates, and uh, we are, we were nearly ready with all the work in the end of the last year. There were some very small questions open. One was the one of the tax rate, and now. With the new United States administration, it's absolutely um, promising that we will have a solution very soon and I'm expecting it to have it this summer. And this is also the case with the question how we could better tax um, the big uh, global active uh, corporates, especially those in the digital sector, the global digital platforms. And uh, there are new proposals on the table, and I'm quite optimistic that we also will be able to finish this project.
1: I'm going to ask you uh, a, a few of the sort of rapid-fire questions that we are getting. Are you able to rule out a coalition government with the left-wing party, De Linke, following the elections?
4: This will be a very different election to the ones we had before, the first time since uh, uh, the beginning of democracy after Second World War. It is uh, it is the case that no one is already the chancellor running for chancellery. It is also new that uh, the three parties that will be successful in the end will get a bit more as 20% and that uh, it is quite difficult to see how a government could be built. My view is that I want to get the necessary popular support for being able to build a government and there will be a lot of options. Which one of them is successful also depends on those that could be partners because it is absolutely clear for me that uh, we have to establish a government that is looking for growth, that is uh, able to support uh, a good fiscal strategy for the future, that is able to uh, develop the European Union. But
1: listening to that, it sounds like you would not rule out uh, any partner, or certainly not the left-wing party. Because when you talk about options at the moment, if you look at the polls, there aren't very many uh, plausible uh, options for an e- SPD being a member of a coalition, let alone you being chancellor. But they would, pro- what, at least one of them, would involve the left party.
4: It is clear that uh, there are there are good reasons why no one is now arguing about how exactly the next government will be built because it is depending on what the people decide and what i asked them for is giving me a popular vote making it uh, possible to fi- to build a government that is good for the future of our country and good for europe
1: how are you going to cut through what's your when you're having your uh campaign meetings about how you're going to turn things around in the
4: polls well, yeah. first, there are some very positive aspects that could be seen in many polls. We could understand that uh, most of the people would think could th- think that I could be a very good chancellor, and if they could choose directly uh, the chancellor, they would elect me. so this is the basis for the support for my party as well because I am the candidate of the social democratic party
1: realistically though, does your party need a time out of government? to show people that it, is a distinct, that it has a distinctive identity. Centre-left parties all over Europe are trying to establish, uh, to find common ground on the key issues with voters, and they're struggling. Uh, the, your party has had uh, the unique situation of having that happen while often being in government. Do you need a time out of power?
4: No, we don't need a time out of power. We need a time in power where we are having the lead, So the biggest problem for Germany is that uh, since 2005, we haven't been in the Chancellery.
1: And there's no realistic chance of you having that this time around?
4: I think we will have a good chance to get the vote of the people and to, to form a coalition. And this is what I'm running for.
1: Olaf Scholz, thank you very much for joining us again. Thank you. That really is it for this episode of Stephanomics. I'll be back next week with a lot more from around the world. And should you feel the need, you can always get more from Bloomberg Economics by following at Economics on Twitter. This episode was produced by Magnus Henriksen, with special thanks to Sean Donnan, Prinesha Nedu, Tom Orlick, and the German Vice-Chancellor and Minister of Finance, Olaf Scholz. The executive producer of Stephanomics is Mike Sasso, and the head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca
5: Levy.